0: Good morning. May I invite you to turn in your Bibles to um, not a traditional Christmas passage, but one that I think will help us through this Christmas season. It's the Gospel of Matthew and the 11th chapter, beginning with verse 2. Just a few verses that we'll comment on this morning. Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 2. Now in John, that's John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind received their sight, and the lame walked. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. God's word for us today. Let me greet you this way today. Good morning, people of faith. Good morning, people of doubt. Oh, you might say, wait, 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 what's that about doubt? We're believers, we're known for our faith, but you know this is Christmas time, and there are a lot of things that people wonder about during these days. Christmas is a time of immense details. I heard you would be decorating and you've done well. This is just probably a part of what you did this year in your homes and other places. There's details. There's debt often in people's homes at Christmas time. And there are a few doubts as well. You might think of some yourself. Mine have been over the years how, how does Santa read all of those letters? It seems to me impossible. And and growing up, we didn't have a fireplace. I never could figure out how he got into our house. I think we locked the front door. And then we kind of move into what we consider this time the, the Christmas stories. And is Jesus really born on December 25th? How do we how do we know that? Or uh, How did God get that star to shine just in one place, over Bethlehem? We call those questions, but for some, it gives them reason to doubt as well. Actually, doubts have been around for a long, long time. And I'd like to validate today that doubts are actually not always bad for us, that can actually lead us to a stronger position in our life. I like the words of Shakespeare who said, Modest doubt is called the beacon of the wise. Now he, the adjective, modest doubt, is often is called the beacon of the wise. And didn't God expect us to have doubts? Why else would... Jesus have said, seek and you will find. There are a lot of doubters in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. I mean, they're in the Old as well. But, I mean, Mary herself, she is the one who pondered, how will this be since I am a virgin? I don't think she was wondering about biology at that point in time. A little bit of qualm in her spirit. And I'll just call them the Jerusalem clergy. I don't know what else to call them. But they knew the texts. They knew what Micah had said, that a Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. But, you know, they must have, Matthew 2, doubted to some degree because they don't even show up. They don't go with the wise men, as far as we can tell, seeking the one who is born king of the Jews. Of course, New Testament doubters include people like Nicodemus, who in John 3 asked, how can this be? When he was told he must be born again. And then there's that other Mary who doubted a bit the love of Jesus when she knew that he could have saved her brother. And and I mean... All of the disciples together demonstrated some doubt. You read about it in Matthew chapter 16 when, when Jesus pronounced that there would be this suffering that he would experience. They doubted it. And then the resurrection. And, and then there was Thomas. Thomas. Who must see the evidence of the wounded body of Jesus or otherwise, eh, just forget it of the disciples that just decide to go fishing. You might not always call that doubt, but I think they are pictures of it. And then there's this John, John the Baptizer, the Baptist, as people in the South certainly must call him that. They started denominations with his name in it, right? Johannin the Immerser. This doesn't have a ring to it, does it? But that's who he was. And I'd like to just remind you of his story today. I'll share his account, then his confidence, then his confusion, and then Christ's clarification. I know this sounds long, but it's not. And then there are some implications for it for us today. So the account, the account, his story. We know quite a bit, actually, about John the Baptist. We know that... um, in some way, even before Jesus was born and John was born, they met. Well, you know the story of Luke chapter one. The physician Luke states that John jumped in his mother's womb when the pregnant Mary came to visit her cousin Elizabeth. It, it, it might have been it might have been what doctors call startle reflex. We medical people have an answer for everything, but but I, I don't know. I just don't think that Mary came into the room and went, boo, you know, to El- Elizabeth. But somehow they met in that moment, it seemed. And we know about John that he lived under the Nazarite vow, which does not mean he was from Nazareth. But it goes back into the Old Testament, you know, to Numbers chapter 6, and it means that John was consecrated. He was consecrated. What did that mean? Well, for one, externally we know what it meant because it meant no haircuts would save him a few dollars, I suppose, along the way. He was the first century hippie, perhaps. Except for this, he never drank wine, never crossed his lips, no doobies or anything else that people might have smoked, I suppose. He was different. And we don't know this for certain, but there is good reason to believe that perhaps John and Jesus were together at one other point in their childhood, maybe when they both turned 13 because they were born within a few months of one another. Perhaps they had been brought to the temple at the same time for that time of celebrating their manhood. They would experienced some of the interesting details of Jerusalem in that day together, perhaps. We do know this, that John... sub. Uh, uh, subsisted, excuse me, on what I refer to as a starvation diet. I mean, if somebody said, hey, would you like to come over? We're going to have locusts and honey. I'd say, mm, what What else, perhaps, could you serve? And he dressed kind of in that rummage, sale look, flair of the day. I don't know. I kind of think he might have bib overalls with one of the straps off if he were living today, maybe. I know this about John the Baptist. He was called to a very unique kind of role. I mean, there were a lot of people that were preaching and teaching in those days. But here he is. First of all, he's not even hanging out in the, the white marbled stone or limestone uh, synagogues. He's, he's off on the other side of the desert, really, and he's preaching hellfire and brimstone. And he's calling people to repentance there and out in the, the boonies in the wilderness beyond the Dead Sea. And he's telling people about the kingdom of heaven and how it is near and that they need to confess their sins and they need to be baptized as a sign of their desire to clean up their act, to be followers of God. And and, and when we look at this preacher, this preacher John, he didn't avoid culturally sensitive issues like divorce and remarriage. In particular, you know, he, he kind of nailed... Herod Antipas, I mean, really did. By the way, Herod Antipas, that's an interesting. There are a lot of Herods. The reason for all of this is because Herod Antipas took Herod Philip's brother's wife, Herodias, as his wife. And uh, by the way, Antipas is from Antipater, and it means uh, against everyone. I mean, this is one mean dude, but John goes ahead and He takes a righteous shot at him for all of the sorts of things that he has been doing, and he really does commit kind of one of those death-defying sermons at that point in time. John preaches this way, and eventually, because of what he preaches, he ends up in prison, and that's where the story gets a little more interesting as it relates to our text today. Eventually, he will experience execution by the beheading, which is not a pretty thought for any of us, is it? So here's this story: for more than a year, let's remember this for more than a year. According to Josephus, who was a historian of the time, John has been has been in uh, Herod Antipas's uh, prison in Machaerus, which is uh, located on the far side of the Dead Sea. Uh, and uh, pictures, at least of that we have of that kind of place today are rather dismal to say the least. Now let's not forget that John has been faithful to the word of God. Let's not forget that about him and to his calling. And yet he's experiencing such trouble. And sometimes we say, well, he just got what he deserved about people. But you can't say that about John the Baptist. He's not getting what he deserved, at least not from our perspective, because if he deserved that, then what would the rest of it us experience and I, I just wonder what that might have been like for him not for a few days 3 days in prison or 5 weeks but we're talking for a full year and i wonder did he sing the songs is it well with it is well with my soul or or job's version of it he gives and takes away blessed be the name of the lord or perhaps that very pronounced text from job chapter 13 though you slay me i mean could he sing those kinds of things We we try to identify in our own hearts what we might experience. And I would be just saying, could you use just a little bit of help, God? Just a little bit. I mean, can you imagine being in a prison, an ISIS prison? You'd just be waiting for the seals to show up, right? To Get you out. Where's America when we need them? Or in this case, Jesus, I mean, I, I've preached about you. Where are you? So let me mention, as we move from the account into a look at John's confidence, when John heard what Jesus Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, and here's the question again. Are you the one who was to come? Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect another Johnson is he'd make a great millennial he's in his uh, his 30s early 30s and he's wondering maybe he's doubting well, I'll tell you a little bit more of the story but but I got I've got to interrupt it with this word about John's confidence because it's there and it's oftentimes overlooked so look at this with me let's review his confidence as well I want to help us see that John does not doubt who Jesus is. Did you hear that? I want us to see that, that, that John does not doubt who Jesus is. Look at verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of, it says, the Christ, and you know, you've been taught this before, that means the anointed one, the Christ, the one who was the Messiah, waited for, He's not doubting who Jesus is. I mean, that would take us back to places. I'm so delighted that we read some of the, uh, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah today. But take us back to Isaiah chapter 11, certainly, where we get a picture of, of who this Messiah would be. So the, the question was what? The question was, are you the fulfillment of the prophecy? We'll come back to that. Are you the fulfillment of the prophecy, the, the whole story? So you think back to the time when John preached and then his interaction with Jesus, and you note the, the com- comments and the commitments, really, that John made. And so just for a moment, turn with me back to John chapter 1 because you, you, you've got to see this, not just think about it. This is, this is an amazing story. John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 21 uh, People have come to John act- actually and said to him they asked him what then are you Elijah He said are you you're asking me if I'm Elijah no sorry not Elijah Well then are you the prophet who's the prophet Well that's the Messiah Oh, no, 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 no. No, That's not who I am. You want to know who I am? Let me tell you who I am. I'm the one that's been called to knock some... This is my paraphrase. To knock some sense into your heads, he said. Just as Isaiah foretold. See, he knows Isaiah. He knows it. I'm here to warn you about the coming wrath. I'm here to call you to produce the fruit of repentance in your life. That's what I'm calling for. You can read it in Matthew three as well look at verse 24 and then he said the one who comes a little later than me after me he's the one and i'm not even worthy to untie his sandals or his shoes see john is absolutely certain at least at this point in his life that the messiah was alive and that he was going to show himself he was he was going to be seen and John's job was to get people ready for that. That's what he was there for. So the next day, now down to verse 29, the next day, he saw, now, we believe for the first time in their adult life, perhaps, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look at those words. Behold, when you see the word behold, that's a very important, like, it's not, hey, did you notice? This is like, this is central truth here behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is something only the Messiah is called to do. It's kind of like He says, let's put them together for the Lamb. Now this is why he is confident in Jesus not because Jesus looked like a lamb or the lamb of God or God it's because he has he has been told a truth inside of himself he has the inside scoop literally the one who sent me to baptize people with water he told that the man or who, on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize you with God, the Holy Spirit. And then like a person in court, he swears on his oath on a Bible, and he says, I have seen and I testify that he is what? The Son, verse 33 and 34, the Son of God. You hear any doubt? I don't. I mean, he is confident. He is confident that Jesus is the long-awaited King. That He is the one that is promised in the Garden of, of Eden in Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. That He was revealed. He was revealed now in time, in time and history. He believes this. That this is the Messiah. This is the Deliverer. This is the Redeemer. This is the Provider. This is the Banner. This is the Lord of Lords. This is who He is. We must not miss this. Though John has not spent much time physically with Jesus, he's not wavering. So why the question? Why the delegation sent off to deity? He believes he's deity. The question is here because he wonders, is Jesus all that was needed? Or promised, he wonders. So that leads us to the confusion back again in Matthew's account, now to verse three. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? The key word is the word "another." Perhaps you've heard this before. John had a choice of a couple, or Matthew, excuse me, had a choice of a couple of words. John, as he spoke them. One would describe somebody like you. The other is a word that would describe somebody unlike you. He chose the latter. In other words, are we to look for somebody that is um, able to do something or going to do something that you apparently are not going to do? Because he's confused. He he knows Psalm 2. He knows the ancient writings. He knows that God will install His kingdom Zion. He knows that God will make the nations your inheritance of this Messiah. He knows, verse 9 of Psalm 2, you will rule, oh, rule with an iron scepter. He knows all of those kinds of things. It doesn't seem like that's who you are. It seems like... Well you know you started with all up with a bang read this early in Matthew beginning with chapter 4 he does all kinds of miracles Jesus does John John the Baptist would know about that these were all attesting signs signs that pointed out who this Jesus was supposed to be, that he was indeed the Messiah, that he was this God. But then then he starts to talk about suffering. He talks about himself in terms of a suffering servant. And then that goes back to the Old Testament. But this is not what John the Baptist wants to hear right now. It's not what he wants to focus on. And then Jesus starts talking about making disciples and, and getting people to follow him and taking up crosses and and, and leaving their 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 father and their mother and all of these things behind and, and and now John is in prison and he's just he's confused by all of these things. And ultimately this has to be what bothers him the most. Where are you now? You ever ask that question of God? Where Where are you? My mind this week just rattled through story after story. And then I got a call from Bob Shute in California. He said, Carol died today. He didn't know I'd moved to Tennessee. He thought I was still there in California. That's how close we were. Well, no, he, he was from the church and his life has been difficult. Imagine what that was like. Where are you, God? She was 60 years old. And so we might say and you might say things like this at times in our lives. I'm sick where my loved ones are. I'm married to this callous, self-serving blatherskite. This new word I've just learned. Blatherskite jerk. There are a few of them out there. I, I, I'm caught in the squeeze at work and I, I'm really losing. Our finances are a mess and even David Ramsey can't help me it seems like. Where are you Jesus, are, are you are you the one, or are we to be looking for someone else? Is there another way? Maybe religion, God, Christ isn't going to solve my issues. Maybe Jesus isn't the answer for everything. Just eternal things. People ask those kinds of questions. Here's what happens. Here's what happens to them. They move from faith to unfaith. People talk about that from time to time. Dallas Willard certainly talked about how people move to unfaith. Are you the Christ? Sure, you're the Christ, the Messiah. Does that make a difference in my life? Sometimes we're not so sure. We wonder. Is there another? And so what are we looking for in America today? Are we looking for relief? a break in the action, a time when things ease up a bit. What are we looking for? Get out of jail card free. All kinds of things our culture is looking for right now. We're supposed to stop and smell the roses, but you know, sometimes it just smells like manure. That's all it smells like. Good things happen, but they don't always happen to us. And we think we've paid our dues. We thought we'd been faithful. John the Baptist was faithful. He really was. So there's some confusion. But there in this passage, of course, is clarification. And it comes from Jesus. And it's about who he is. So look at verse 4. Jesus answered them, the John the Baptist disciples. And he doesn't say... I'm the one. Of course I'm the one. You know, you guys ought to get thrown in jail too for even asking such a dumb question. He doesn't say that. Hey, you can read this. Yeah, I, I, Charlotte and I flipped a, across two different uh, sermons this morning as we wrote the 20 minutes or so that it comes up here. One, this guy was just yelling at us the whole time, and I thought, I probably wouldn't go there. I don't know who that is. I don't know where he's from. I probably wouldn't go there. Then I listened to Warren Worsby who... I think he's in heaven, but you know we can play their sermons forever. So, uh, and here was this thoughtful, and I thought, oh yeah, that's. I think that's how Jesus was maybe talking to. us. That's just my perspective. He doesn't say I'm, I'm the, I'm the one. Everybody knows that. But what does he say? Look at it. He says, go back and report what you, two words, see, and hear. See, and hear. Say, wait, what? You want me to, you want us to? Jesus says, tell them what you see and hear. Some of this is obvious. Some of it is obvious when they see and they hear. The, the, the senses, we need that at times in our lives. But sometimes it's not so obvious, the things that we see and hear. So Jesus makes a little bit of a list for them. He talks about the blind and the lame and the lepers and the deaf, even the dead. All of these acts of mercy, all of these miracles will point to one truth. That's Jesus is the one. They will authenticate who he is. Oh, and then Jesus says, tell them what you've heard. And what was that? Well, they would hear the good news of the gospel being preached. But do you notice to whom it is being preached? It is preached in the scriptures not just to... The everybody's, but in particular, and the poor have good news preached to them. That sounds like a nice thing to do. We just kind of find some poor people and preach to them. But this is very telling. This is very telling about who Jesus is. Is. Though, though Christ brings redemption to all mankind and wishes none would perish, interesting to me, he adds in this statement to the disciples preach the good news, the gospel, to the poor, the hurting, the wretched. We know there'll always be the poor. Jesus said that at one point in his teaching at the very end. Proverbs tells us that the poor are disliked by neighbors and hated by brothers. Proverbs Chapter 14, verse 22. But God will say this, and James, that, that, that God God cho- chooses the poor to be rich in faith. Chooses the poor to be rich in faith. And, and in Second Corinthians 8, 9, we read that a, a rich person, when they realize that they are poor, becomes, you remember, becomes rich. Becomes rich. What we really need to remember is what Isaiah 61 says. And all of this was supposed to be on the screen, and I don't know how to save PowerPoints, I guess, so it didn't come with me today. It's in my pocket, but it's not working. So I'll I'll read Isaiah 61. Listen to this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Who is that? Well, he's speaking on behalf of the Messiah. Is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor you make the connection make the connection between what Jesus says to John the Baptist's disciples and once said to John the Baptist by them and what we find back in the and in Isaiah and that's how it all began I mean boy those those power singers I mean you guys are good but those angels, they're really good singers. And they and they sing to shepherds. And and God sends this child to, to Joseph and Mary. I mean, these are humble people. They're, they're, they're all from the stump of Jesse, Isaiah eleven. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 35, verse 5, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I mean, this is coming to the poor. Doubting John. Doubting John. Tell doubting John to add it all up. I know things aren't the way you thought. I know that you thought This kingdom was coming in a power way right now because of what you've seen before. But tell him what you hear, that I preach the good news to the poor. He'll know. He'll know. So what are the implications of all of this? What are the implications? Number one, God does not condemn doubters. Did you hear that? God does not condemn doubters. There were some guys in the boat and he talked about their faith, but he didn't condemn them. Everybody knows the little chorus. Don't be a doubting Thomas. Boy, we're hard on Thomas. Go back and read the stories of Thomas. Jesus said, you're blessed, but you'd be even more blessed if you didn't have to see this. Touch it. Touch it. It's okay. Go ahead. Touch. There are reasons why people doubt. Sometimes they can't connect science and faith. Sometimes it's the issue of hell and why it exists. And really, that's what's going to happen to people who... Don't believe. Others, they can't figure out why God allows suffering in general. Charlotte and I are doing some study on refugee work right now, and there's a lot of people who are hurting in this world. Lots of them. Others doubt the, the reliability of the Bible. And, of course, the greatest issue is unanswered prayer. It doesn't tell us John the Baptist prayed or that he expected. He just, he's struggling. Unanswered prayer was probably a part of his life. And even though Jesus had said, and he might have even known these words, ask and seek and knock, those are actual doubters' words, it seems to me, that he's doubted. But he's not condemned. Secondly, though doubting is helpful at times, getting stuck in doubt is deadly. Get that? It's deadly. I was just kind of looking on the Internet. You know, you've got to find illustrations. I used to pay for an illustration service, but I'm not going to do that anymore. If I can't figure out an illustration now, I'm in big trouble. My age. But I found this story by this Southern Baptist. I mean, he was actually saying these things. He described the good things that God failed to give him. Can you identify with any of this? God promises me a lot, he said in the Bible, and he's not coming through. Ask, and it shall be given. Follow me, and I'll bless you. I promise you life, and I promise you abundance. He knew his Bible to a degree. Man should not be alone. I have a plan for you. Give a tithe and I'll reward you. All broken promises, he wrote. And then he said, this God lacks faith in me, he said. He wants my faith. I want his too. That's deadly. That's deadly. When we let doubts hold us and consume us. See, I'm I'm convinced that faith and doubt are two sides of the same coin. That they belong together. That we will have doubts, but then we will seek this God and know the clarification of who Christ is if we will seek Him with all of our heart. So eventually we have all to come to this place of knowledge of God. That seems to be the the picture that Paul wants us to understand as we page through the epistles that we'd grow in our understanding, that we'd grow in our knowledge, that we would grow in wisdom. All of those things are his prayer for the people of the church, of the body of Christ. Even if we've come to a place of some knowledge, there is more. So John, John was a seeker of this knowledge. He sought the knowledge of Jesus. That's why he sent his disciples. He hadn't given up. He didn't live in his doubt. Jesus was saying, ask, go ahead, ask, compare, see if I cut it or not. And, and I would say that to you or your friends as well. Look, how many times, it's been a number of times in my life when I've asked people why they don't believe and they say, well, I just don't. And I say, well, have you ever read the Gospel of John? Well, no, not really. They're not seekers. One of the great thinkers said this about doubt he said we're taught in our culture to think that a person who doubts is essentially smarter than a person who believes this is great but you can be as dumb as a cabbage and still ask why in other words doubting is not smart But it's real to our soul, so we doubt and then we believe. So lastly, and then I'm done, don't leave this life without the answer. John the Baptist did not leave without the answer. The answer is the Redeemer, the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost, the one who was doubting, the one who had questions. He is the one who has come to give us life and give it abundantly, and He did and He does. I don't know how I discovered this a couple of years ago now, but I was I, I, a thought popped in my mind. You, you know those T-shirts that that, that um, say life is good. You know life is good T-shirts. That I had a picture I wanted to show you, but but that, that little company that was started in the town I, I just didn't stay around long enough. The town that I was raised in as a child up in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. It was started there. It's a hundred million dollar a year business now. And they make these popular t-shirts. Life is good. And Bert Jacobs, one of the the two boys, the the, the Jacob brothers that started this this business. would talk about their philosophy of life. And this is what it was. It's really easy. You don't need to write it down. You don't even need to remember it. But you got to at least get the picture when you see the T-shirt. Number one, be optimistic. Number two, turn on the lights, which really doesn't mean physically, but kind of move forward, you know, go for it kind of an attitude. And the third was make friends. So if you're optimistic and you're going for it and you're making friends, life is good and I'm going, baloney, life isn't good when I do those kinds of things. Uh, life can still be very difficult during times when I'm trying to do all those things. I mean, is life good after a breakup? I've never... Well, 50% of those that break up or say it's terrible. The other side may think it's great, I, I suppose. But is, is life good when you're lonely? Uh, my My father died when my mother was 53. She was never going to marry again. She... He was the love of her life and she she just, that was the only one for her until she was about 88. She was so lonely. I, said, I had to say, Mom, you wouldn't like what you'd get at 88. Just rest and we'll do the best we can as your kids. When you're lonely, is life good? When you've lost a life partner, Is life good then? When your bubble bursts? When you've had two strikes and maybe you're about to swing for the third time and you know you're going to miss? When somebody breaks a promise to you and then they break it again, is life good? That was the question of John. Is there a wonderful life? Or is it just a Christmas story? Is there life that is good if there is no hope of getting out of prison? Don't miss it. Life is good when we look at Jesus carefully and we don't fall away. Blessed, did you see it? Blessed is He. Life is good because God is good. Life is good when we ask our questions and we find Him not lacking. Father, uh, I don't know the hearts of your people here today, but I am grateful for your word. I am grateful for the stories that remind me and us of who you are, blessed Jesus, the one who gives hope even to those who are poor and those in prison and those who have parted with people that they've loved for so long. Blessed is your name, O Lord, And, Father, even this morning, if in this room there are those who have listened who have not placed their faith in Christ, I pray that that journey will come to its its rightful conclusion today, that they will trust you as their Savior. Because you are the one who makes life good. It's in your name we pray. Amen.